Thank you for listening to Hope Fellowship Church in Jaffrey, New Hampshire. We're currently going through a sermon series about King David in 2 Samuel. David was a shadow of Jesus, the King of Kings who had come to save us from our sin and offer us eternal life. If you would like to learn more about our ministry, please visit hopejaffrey.org. Uh, we're in 2 Samuel today, and uh, I'm excited about this message and all that God's going to do. This is a... Uh, uh, a powerful passage, really. We're, we're going to be jumping into uh, a, a rich chapter, uh, 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 many chapters, really. We're actually looking at seven chapters today. And some of you who know me are a little bit, you're like, okay, we'll see. We'll, we'll see how that works. We're really looking at a, a, a different styled message today. We're going to be doing quite an overview because I want you to get the big picture today. I want you to come away from this uh, praising God for his plan of redemption and what he has done through King David, setting him up on the throne and establishing his kingdom. And so I'm excited about it because it is, it is going to be unique in the sense that uh, we're looking at seven chapters today. I even put together, because the teacher that I am, a little study guide for you. Okay, So some of you might have gotten it uh, when you came in, or we have sermon notes and questions that are handed out on paper form. But uh, we also have it online on the website, or you might get a text, uh, and you can check the sermon uh, bulletin. And in that online bulletin, you can click on sermon notes, and they're right in there, too, on your phone. Uh, but ultimately what it is, and we'll do this in a moment, look at some of the characters that are in the stories today, and really an outline of the whole seven chapters. And frankly, we're going to be really focusing on the last chapter or so of this passage and of this section of 2 Samuel. But I want us to get the overview, because I think it's, it's very beautiful and rich as we look at God's plan of redemption and what he's doing through King David. Does that sound good? All right. All right, let's pray to start before we jump into this uh, and w- before we get into uh, this chapter and this passage. God, thank you for what you've done. Thank you for the words that have been prayed. Lord, as, as, as we were just praying and focusing our prayers on that your kingdom come. God, may that your will be done. God, today in this church and in this place, in this message, in all that you have to teach us from this from this ancient text, that it would reach these modern ears with life, with transformation and resurrection power today. That the truths would shape us, would form us, and equip us to live today, to operate in our day-to-day lives, but to give us grounding and a future hope that there is a reason for getting up in the morning. That there is a purpose for our existence. That this planet and this place and our little blip in time is not just a finite blip, but an eternal kingdom as we are citizens of an eternal purpose, worshiping and serving an almighty, eternal, forever God. Thank you, God, that you have given us these truths today. I just pray you'd encourage these people, those maybe listening online or later on during the week. God, would you bless them wherever they are? Encourage them today. Strengthen our hearts and understanding in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So today's message is a little bit unique. Like I said, it's called actually Kings, Killings, and Kingdoms, or The Kingdom. And you're kind of wondering what is going on there. Well, we understand the Kings part. The Killings part was, frankly, well, there's 
There's a lot of killing in today's chapter. I don't know how to, how to summarize it for you. Really, in the first five chapters, um, there's assassination attempts, there's uh, assassinations, there's executions, there's stabbings. It's, it's quite the graphic novel, okay? It's quite the mature-rated text uh, to the point where some of the passages uh, get, wow, you're like, well, that's pretty gruesome. And so it's one of those things that I want us to look at today. Uh, but, but to do that is helpful there. We have a kind of a character list. I think they can throw it up for you because there's so many different characters that are introduced that even as I preach through it, oh, we're, we're getting screen issue, technical difficulties, that's okay. Like I said, I had it in paper form for you, um, so you have it in, in, in this or on the online bulletin. But there's so many different characters here that I felt like it's helpful for you to have it in front of you and to be able to look at who these different people are. Really today, what you're going to be talking about in the beginning is a civil war that's going on. The house of David, as David ascends the throne, and the declining house of Saul. For house of Saul, Saul just died last chapter, last message. He passed away in battle. So you have David's house that is rising, King Saul's house that is falling, and there's a civil war and killing and backstabbing and assassinations between the two. It's pretty gruesome. Joab, one of the characters mentioned, is a commander general of David's army. He assassinates Abner in cold blood. Asahel is Joab's brother. In the scripture, it actually says he's a fast runner. The, the marked thing about his personality is he's quick and he's fast. He's the fastest runner. And yet he pursues Abner in battle and Abner kills him. Abishai is Joab's brother as well, the officer in David's army. Michael is Saul's daughter, who is David's estranged wife, who he wrongly later demands to have in return. The house of Saul on the other side, you could say one side of the battlefield, is uh, Joab, Asahel, Abishai, and Michael kind of lurking in the background as she disdains David. Oh, look at this. Here we go. The house of Saul is Abner. He's the general of the army. Abner is the commander of Saul's army. He's later on assassinated by Joab because he killed Asahel, his brother. Ishbosheth is this kind of puppet king who takes the place of Saul in the kingdom of Israel. Saul dies and they need a king. So Abner, who's really the main guy in charge, he appoints Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, to take over as a king. And yet he's weak, hapless in many ways. He's just a puppet king who holds the throne for a few years and then is assassinated in his sleep by his own men. See, I told you, this gets pretty rough, okay? Um, Mephibosheth is one we're not going to talk about today. I just wanted to put it in your mind because we'll talk about it in the coming weeks. But he's Jonathan's son who was also just killed in battle. But Jonathan's son, he's crippled and lame. And later on, we see the kindness and the love of David as he adopts Mephibosheth into his own family. And then really, there's other characters that are mentioned. These two are the two that killed Ishbosheth in his sleep. They assassinated them for selfish gain. And David is angry that even he would do this for uh, an Amalekite came to David saying, hey, I killed Saul. And David has him executed for, even, for lying about killing the Lord's anointed. In the similar manner, Ishbosheth is, is an enemy of David, but David executes these two for killing Ishbosheth in his sleep because they were seeking gain and fame and to get on the side of power. And he says that's not the right way to do it. And then we get a guy named Uzzah, or Uzzah. I'll just go with Uzzah today. Is that good? And uh, it's a very interesting name. But he, in a unique situation, which we'll look at in chapter 6 and 7, he touches the Ark of the Covenant trying to hold it as it falls off a cart and God strikes him dead. It's a striking situation. 
where the fear of God is then struck into the people. And then Obed-Edom is a family or a name there as a person who houses the Ark of the Covenant after that fearful situation, and his household and his family is blessed because they harbor the Ark of God. So that, in a nutshell, are some of the main characters that, again, you don't, probably won't have it memorized, but you can look through and think through as we go. And I want us to consider kind of the storyline of this whole time, this whole first seven chapters that we're looking at in brief today. That, that in, this, in this book, in this, in this Word of God, every time you open up the Scripture, every time you read it through, you're going to encounter different chapters, different books, and ultimately different genres. There are so many different kinds of genres in the Bible. We often think of it as one book. But, but in the Bible, there's law in the first five books. There's historical writings, which we're reading today, very much loaded in history. Did, did you guys like history growing up in, in class, or in high school, college, whatever? You, you, you went to history class. I, I always enjoyed it. In fact, I got my chance before I was a pastor, I was a teacher at a school, and I got to teach world history and, and teach history and geography, and it was something I've always enjoyed and always loved. I love the stories about real people, real history, real events, real locations, to understand history. Honestly, to me, learning history can be a lot of fun. Maybe that's not what it is for you. Or maybe some of you enjoy the, the poetry side of things of the Word of God, the Psalms, the Proverbs, the Ecclesiastes, that are written in a different form, in a different genre. And so when you read Psalms versus reading 1 Samuel, you get a very different feel. Psalms are often musical and poetical. Uh, po- po- there's poetry in there. And then you have uh, different passages like Isaiah and Ezekiel. Technical difficulty today. There we go. Uh, there we have, uh, I was gone there for a moment. Um, we have history. And then we also have in Isaiah, in Ezekiel, you have prophecy. Right? So these aspects of prophesying what's going to happen. And then in the New Testament, epistles, letters, the gospels, and more history. And then Revelation, this pro- prophetic or apocalyptic sort of literature. So what I'm saying is today is very historical. I want us to see the historical timeline of what God is doing in real people, real events, in real history that really matters. Because ultimately, I believe, history repeats itself. You ever heard that phrase, right? History repeats itself. There are many situations, especially in the first chapters, that as I'm reading, I'm like, well, that sounds like our modern day, right? That sounds like the modern day political backstabbing that happens as people are hungry for power and seek to try to just seek whatever thing they can to do to tear down the other side and gain power for themselves. That's what we have in the Civil War. The, the house of Saul versus the house of David as both uh, uh, beyond David underneath him seek to try to gain power as Joab and Abner go at it. And yet we see that in and through it all, though man may try to attack one another and kill one another, God is working his plan of redemption behind the scenes the whole entire time. The main character, uh, you often hear me say that the main character in this storyline is not David. It is the Lord God. He's in the background through his spirit and he is working. He is planning. He is elevating, exalting the goodness of David in David's house, and he is, he is uh, putting down and, and um, causing the house of Saul to submit due to their wickedness. 
And yet we see that in all of this, David becomes the supreme king, this type of Christ, this leader in which we look to. And yet we understand that he fails and falters, and he is certainly not perfect, and we learn that he's not the Messiah, the final anointed one. But that in David, we see a, a shade of what is to come. We see a lens to look at the world and see that there is one like David, a son of David, who is going to come to rescue the world and to save the world, and to save us all as we, this people of Israel and the Gentile world, expand to the church. And so it's in this beautiful historical timeline, this historical story, and I sometimes hesitate using the word story because we often think of it like a, this is story time. Like these are pretend characters. And so I think history is sometimes maybe better for us to, to think through these chapters in that manner. And so I like to draw and come up with uh, little uh, characters on my board and stick figures and writings and doodles to be able to think through things. And so this week I was on my board in my office drawing little timelines and storylines and little stick figures stabbing other stick figures and then one stick figure that has a big crown and he's King David and they're carrying the Ark of the Covenant. And the staff here, you know, didn't appreciate it. They thought it wasn't that great. And so I thought it was awesome. So I asked Hannah, who's a fantastic graphic designer here to make my crazy timeline with stick figures actually look good and be useful. And so she did. And they, they put up uh, this timeline for us that I think is much better probably than the one I was describing in my own head. But so you don't get the stick figures today. Is that, is that okay? Uh, but you do today. We're going to have this timeline along in the background as we go. Uh, because I think it's going to be helpful for us. You'll see even in your study guide, you can follow along with this as well. But I think it's going to very simply help us think through what God's doing. In the beginning here, we're starting in chapter 1 of 2 Samuel. Chapter 1, we're not reading the whole chapter, don't worry. Uh, but chapter 1 is ultimately right after Saul dies. And Amalekite comes to David saying, hey, I killed King Saul. Give me some money, really. Give me fame. L- look what I did. Uh, rescue me, you know. Uh, look how awesome I am. I killed your enemy, David. This Amalekite thinks he's going to be received with with honor because he killed King Saul. When really, he lied about it. He didn't kill King Saul. He just took uh, Saul's stuff and ran and all that. And and David has him executed for, for lying and saying that he touched the Lord's anointed in this way. For David is not going to take the kingdom through this way, through bloodshed, through backstabbing. He's going to follow the will of God. That, right there, what I just said, will be in direct contrast with what everyone else will try to do. Everybody else around David, his people, Joab, the enemies, Abner, they're all going to try to take power into their own hands with the sword of their own hand when they want to take advantage of others. And that's what they're seeking to do. And so we see a a stark contrast between the way Saul operated for years, hunting David, seeking to take him out, seeking to do his will his way, not his kingdom. It was Saul's kingdom come, right? David is often saying, your kingdom come, your timing, your will, your way. Lord, what would you have me to do? When everyone else around him in the first five chapters is out assassinating everybody else, okay? Literally, it's a giant soap opera. Um, Chapter one is that. Chapter two, we see David. In chapter two, verse one, it says, sometime later, David prayed or David inquired of the Lord. Right off the bat, chapter 2, he, he prays, uh, you know, should I go to one of the towns of Judah? The Lord answered him, go. So David asked, where should I go? 
He says, go to Hebron. Just to start, David is praying to God, asking, Lord, what should I do? And so he goes to Hebron. The people of Judah come together, and they anoint David. They crown him king. But the kingdom is divided. See that broken crown? The kingdom is divided into two parts. We often think of American history with the north and the south, right? The Union versus the Confederates. That's kind of what's happening here. You have this this split kingdom. You have the kingdom of Israel that is following the house of Saul and the southern kingdom of Judah, which has aligned themselves with David. Now, eventually, David will unite them, but it takes five chapters to do that and lots of bloodshed in order for that to happen. So David is anointed king over Judah. And yet, in the second part of chapter 2, you get this striking, crazy kind of situation that I believe is a symbol of what's going on in the background. It's called the Field of Blades. See that blades underneath the crown? This is the kingdom, of divi- kingdom divided. You can look at verse 13 with me, 2 Samuel chapter 2. It says, So Joab, son of Zeruiah, and David's soldiers marched out and met them by the pool of Gibeon. Verse 13, The two groups took up positions on opposite sides of the pool. Then Abner said to Joab, These are the leaders of the two houses, the two generals, Let's have the young men get up and compete in front of us. And let them get up, Joab replied. It's kind of like a David and Goliath situation. Let's have these two representatives join and compete in kind of a wrestling match to see who wins. Verse 13. So they got up and were counted off. Twelve for Benjamin and Ishbosheth, son of Saul, and then twelve from David's soldiers. So that's 24 total. They're going to fight. Verse 16. Then each man grabbed his opponent by the head and thrust his sword into the opponent's side. So they all died together. So this place, which is called Gibeon, is named Field of Blades. It's a striking, strange situation. It's as if 12 on one side, 12 on the other side, are about to fight, and they all have the same idea in mind. They all strike each other at the same time, and they all die together at the same time, being struck by the blade. It's a strange situation, a strange scene And yet I think what this scene is emblematic of or illustrates with the greater storyline underneath, that ultimately brother is going to be killing brother. Friend will be killing friend. That's what they said in the Civil War of America. You had families divided. You had cousins killing cousins. You had family members fighting family members. You had north versus south. You have Israel, the people of God, fighting Judah here. You have Joab and Abner who should be fighting on the same side seeking to kill one another. And it will end in bloodshed and terror until finally David can unite the kingdoms. A Messiah, a united one, an anointed one can come and unite the people of God and bring peace. Isn't that fascinating? There's one character, there's one person who unites and brings peace to the kingdom. David will do that. But before that time, we have Asahel who who chases and he eventually is killed by Abner. It says that Asahel was a fast runner like one of the wild gazelles. He runs after Abner and Abner says, I don't want to kill you. Stop chasing me. Don't chase me. And he continues to chase him. Abner kills him in battle. Joab and others are not happy about this. And so that begins in chapter 3, this civil war that breaks out between the two sides. Chapter 3, verse 1 of 2 Samuel says, During the long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, there's a war, David was growing stronger. The house of Saul was becoming weaker. You see that? It's a clear statement where it is as if God is doing this the entire time. 
God is strengthening David. Saul is becoming weaker. So no matter what may happen, we know that God is working in the background. God is strengthening the house of David. And so there's this power struggle that happens. It says in verse 6 of 2 Samuel 3, it says, During the war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner kept acquiring more power for the house of Saul. So Abner is trying to seek power, acquire power for himself, just like any general would do in an army. Any general would seek to receive more power. So there's a power struggle. Then eventually, uh, Abner will be assassinated by Joab, where Abner goes to David to try to make peace. Really, he just tries to get on the winning side. And so he starts talking with, in diplomacy with David, like, hey, you know, what if I give you some information, if I can get the people of Israel to join you, you know, we can make this all thing work together, and I'll be a general in your army. And David's like, all right, this is a good idea. But Joab, who recently just had his brother killed in battle by Abner, is not having it. He's angry at Abner. He wants revenge, and he wants to avenge his brother's death. It sounds a lot different than we've seen David, isn't it? David's been avoiding revenge. He's been avoiding a vengeful spirit. He's chosen to allow Saul to live and put his hand into God's hands. But no, Joab takes matters into his own hands. So he goes and he stalks Abner by, uh, through the middle of the city. And then he lies to him and says, I just want to speak privately with you. This is in verse 27 of 2 Samuel 3. And he says, I just want to speak privately with you. And he, Joab brings Abner aside and then he stabs him in the stomach. And he kills him, assassinates him in this, this lying, deceptive way. Abner died in revenge for the death of Asahel, Joab's brother. One hits one, I punch you, you punch me. I punch you, you punch me. It goes back and forth, back and forth. And so then David uh, makes Joab and others lament and mourn over the death of a brother in arms, as they, even though they're on different sides. And they have a funeral, and there's mourning, and there's lament. David sings a lament, a lament about all the blood that has been shed and the, the, the wicked civil war that's going on. And then chapter 4 comes along. Abner's gone. There's a power vacuum. And Ishbosheth, basically as a puppet king, just says, I'm done. I quit. I don't really want to do this anymore. I didn't want to do it in the first place. He's essentially quit, says in chapter 4. And then he's sleeping. And he's sleeping and two of his men creep into his room and they again stab him in the stomach in the same manner, in the same way while he's sleeping. Then they take his head and they go to David and say, look, we killed Ishbosheth. Shouldn't you be happy? Why don't you reward us? Look what we've done. David in anger and in and really the fear of God just is, says no an Amalekite already tried this this isn't going to work for you guys to kill someone in his sleep and to think that I would honor you for that how dare you touch really what God is doing for God is the one in control he's redeemed my life he says he's protected me from distress and now you come in here and you want me to reward you for taking power into your own hands no 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 and so he has them executed and judgment placed down upon their lives And so after this situation, it's this incredible, uh, really traitorous acts, assassination, executions, killings that are going on. It's bad news all around. And I I just love this this picture that we get in chapter 5. There's a change. There's a situation in which the time is right now. The situation has been played out. 
where we've seen mankind be mankind. We've seen sin being poured out and, and, and enjoyed and murder and all of these evil, wicked things. And yet, finally, it is as if the cream rises to the crop, as if the time is right and David steps into the throne and as the people of Israel have recognized their own sin, how God is orchestrating this, and finally they begin to align themselves with the true and rightful king to follow the true and anointed one, the Messiah here, David. And so in chapter five at the beginning, it says all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron, the capital city at that time. Here we are, your own flesh and blood. Yeah, no kidding. You are own flesh and blood. We've been literally killing each other for the past several years. Now let's join together. So even when Saul was king over us, you were the one who led us to battle and brought us back. The Lord also said to you, you will shepherd my people Israel. You will be ruler over Israel. And so in the presence, they anointed David king over Israel. And David was 30 years old when he began his reign. He reigned for 40 years. So now what has happened? If we bring the timeline back up, we've seen that this uh, situation has been the uh, division between the divided kingdom. Now the kingdom is united. And now what will David do? Now that he is king over Judah and Israel, what will happen? How will he reign? What will he do? Well, he inquires of the Lord and he goes after the enemies of the Philistines and pushes them back from the land. And he starts to increase the power of the kingdom uh, that is here, the kingdom of Israel. And he increases the kingdom. And as the kingdom is increased, other people around begin to, uh, King Hiram sends cedar logs and other people see the success and the greatness of what's going on. And yet I will say, in chapter 5, as David then goes in, a, in a, an extraordinary time here, he acquires the city of David, which is known as Jerusalem. This is when Jerusalem starts to come onto the scene, where we know of Jerusalem as a famous city. Up until this point, it was just a city in that area, and it was ruled by the Jebusites. So David comes and acquires the city. It says in chapter 5, verse 6, the king and his men march to Jerusalem. This is chapter 5, verse 6. Against the Jebusites who inhabited the land, the Jebusites had said, David, you will never get in here. Even the blind and the lame can repel you, thinking David can't get in here. Yet David did capture the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David, also named Jerusalem. He said that day, whoever attacks the Jebusites must go through the water shaft to reach the lame and the blind who are despised by David. For this reason, it is said, the blind and the lame will never enter the house. I was talking to some people about that line there this week, and I don't fully understand all of it, but I did in my own personal reading. I was reading in Matthew, and in Matthew chapter 21, it describes Jesus on Palm Sunday when Jesus enters into Jerusalem. He enters into Jerusalem, and he goes to the temple, and in the temple, the scripture points out to us that when Jesus cleanses the temple on that Palm Sunday as Jesus rides into Jerusalem like a triumphant king, when he enters, it says that the blind and the lame come to Jesus and he heals them. I don't know if it's a direct connection, but it is certainly striking that the first time David enters into Jerusalem and captures the city of Jerusalem, it says that the blind and the lame will be repelled, and they use the blind and the lame as a mockery for David. And yet one day, the son of David, Jesus Christ, will enter the temple, receive the blind and the lame, and heal them in that same temple location that happens in this place. It's extraordinary. But in chapter 5, we see it continue. He increases the kingdom, the kingdom grows, and yet David's seed of failure is planted here. 
you notice at the end of chapter 5, it says that David took. Do you know what David took? It becomes the seed of his failure. This becomes his downfall. This becomes the, the seed of all his problems later in life because David took wives and he took concubines. It does not say that he, you know, had this process. It was common for kings in that time to do this, but yet the king of Israel was supposed to be different. And yet Samuel had already given the people of Israel warning, saying that when you have a king, you want a king, I'll give you a king, but I tell you, when that king comes, he's going to take from you. He's going to take your daughters, he's going to take your sons, he's going to take your food, he's going to take your land, and he's going to do with it what he wants. That's what kings do. Are you sure you want a king? The people of Israel say, yeah, we want a king. We want to be like everyone else. So this is kind of some of that prophecy coming forward. That's in 2 Samuel 5.10, he took, and then he took more in verse 13, the concubines. And later on, you'll know the story of Bathsheba, some of that that goes on. All right, so then chapter 6, this is kind of the, kind of the final end here. This 6 and 7 is really where it all comes together, where we see this city of David, and then we see this worship misused, which we're about to see. Look at chapter 6, verse 1. It says, David again assembled all the fit young men of Israel, 30,000, said to his troops to bring the ark of God, the ark of the covenant, to Baal Judah. The ark bears the name the name of the Lord of armies who is enthroned between the cherubim. What did they do? Verse 3, they set the Ark of the Covenant, the Holy Ark of God, which in the tabernacle you could not go forward, could not see, could not touch. And yet, what do they do to it? They set the Ark of God on a new ox cart. And they transported it from Abinadab's house, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ohio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the cart. They brought it from the ark, uh, the ark of God from Abinadab's house on the hill. Ahio uh, walked in front of the ark. David and the whole house of Israel were dancing before the Lord with all kinds of fir, wood instruments, lyres, harps, tambourines, cisterns, cymbals. There's music being played. The ark of the covenant is going and being pulled on a cart. And when they came to Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah reached out to the ark of God and he took hold of it because the oxen had stumbled and the ark of covenant was falling and he tried to support it with his weight and what happened verse 7 the Lord's anger burned against Uzzah and God struck him dead on spot for his irreverence and he died there next to the ark this is a striking story a story or this history should in many ways cause fear in you because that's exactly what happens to David look at verse 8 David was angry because of the Lord's outburst against Uzzah. He named that place the outburst against Uzzah as it is today. Verse 9, David feared the Lord. Did you catch that? David feared the Lord, verse 9, that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? We see here an example of worship being misused where the Ark of the Covenant was never meant to be placed on some wooden cart and to be carted around like some piece of furniture. This was the presence of the Shekinah glory, the Ark of God, the physical representation of God's presence on the earth, the Ark of the Covenant, and they put it on a common ox cart and gathered it around. They disobeyed God's law and His way, and, and God punishes them for it. And in some ways, I, I, in my heart, I'm like, this isn't fair. That's not okay. I, Uzzah was trying to do the right thing. In many ways, maybe his heart was doing the right thing, but in everything that they were doing, they were doing the wrong thing. And David, in many ways, is fearful. And this always reminds me of this reminder that we've said very often here that 
that God is good. Because look, in fact, in verse 10, he blesses Obed-Edom for taking the ark. He blesses the people of God in the future when they operate in worship the way it's supposed to be operated. But we also know that God is not safe. Have you ever heard that phrase? God is not safe. Where C.S. Lewis, speaking of Aslan, says safe. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. He's a lion. But he's good, right? In the sense that the Ark of the Covenant and the holiness of God and the very fearful power of God, we know that God is not safe in the sense that it's just trivial thing, but rather a very powerful, mighty God, the God of angel armies, you could say. And yet, He is good and He is loving. As we pray, our Father, hallowed be Your name, right? God, You are my Father. I am Your child, but You are holy You are set apart. I am not God. You wholly are. And so they restore the sacrifice. As you'll see on the timeline, the sacrifice is restored. David instructs the Levites to move the ark uh, from Obed-Edom's house where it was being harbored for a few days to Jerusalem, up the hill. And in chapter 6, Verse 13, they sacrificed an ox and a fatted calf every six steps, I believe it was. They would advance six steps and sacrifice, advance six steps and sacrifice, advance six steps and sacrifice. There was a real fear and awe for the holiness of God. And yet, what was going on? Look at verse 13, they sacrificed, then verse 14. David was dancing with all his might before the Lord, wearing a linen ephod. The sacrifice is restored. The worship is being renewed. David is operating like a king, leading, but he's operating like a priest, for he's wearing a linen ephod, the priestly garments of the priest. You know, Samuel has passed away. The priestly line here is now falling in David's way, and he's leading the worship of God by leading the Ark of the Covenant and directing the people of God to worship Yahweh. So David is dancing, with all his might before the Lord wearing a linen ephod. There's a unique worship service, right? Okay? Verse 15, and he and the whole house of the Lord, Israel, were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sounds of a ram's horn. And as the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Saul's daughter Michael looked down in the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. Verse 17, they brought the ark of the Lord and set it in the place in the tent where David had pitched for it. David offered burnt offerings of fellowship offerings in the Lord's presence. And look at this, verse 18, David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the fellowship offerings. He then blessed the people in the name of the Lord armies. And then look, verse 19, he distributed a loaf of bread and a date cake and a raisin cake to each one of the entire Israelite community, both men and women. And then all the people went home. I love this because what we see is this picture of a worship service occurring. The Ark of the Covenant is entering the place of Jerusalem. The the priest is dancing and praising God. There is musical singing, shouts. There are cymbals being played. There are people rejoicing. We sang it earlier. The house of the Lord. There is joy in the house of the Lord. That's what's going on. They then, David, 
prays over the people, he blesses the people, then he distributes food for the people. When else do you see this happen? Well, today we don't have date cakes and raisin cakes and all those kinds of things. We just have a little bit of unleavened bread and some juice for you today that we're going to have in communion. As we come together, we praise the Lord, we sing his praises, we then distribute the bread as Jesus did. He fed the 5,000. Jesus took 5,000 people, came to him, he taught them. Then what did he do? He broke the bread. He distributed it among many. He fed those. So I think in like manner we see a similar worship service, an early worship service of what that looks like as he distributes it. In fact, we see Melchizedek do the same thing earlier to Abraham. And yet, I love this as it says, Tim Chester says this, God has come to his people and the people eat a meal in his presence. Just a few days prior, Uzzah was struck by God for his uh, disastrous attempt to worship God. Now, they're eating a meal in the presence of God. In every culture, eating a meal with someone is a sign of friendship and community. Eating a meal in the presence of God is the goal of the Bible, the story and sign of our reconciliation with God. So the answer to the question, how can the presence of the Lord ever come to me? As David said, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? This fearful thing? How? It's through sacrifice and sacrifice and sacrifice. Yet for us under the new covenant, the sacrifices are a pointer to the blood of Jesus. For at the cross, God broke out against the Son in, the, in our place so that we could come into his presence. The cross of Jesus Christ being the place where his wrath is poured out so that the presence of God could be among us in this place so that we could have the joy of the Lord. There is joy in the house of the Lord today. That, that's incredible to consider. And so then, as the Ark of the Covenant is placed within the Ark, uh, placed within the tent in Jerusalem, the new capital city, David begins to expand the city. And then God visits David with a prayer in a vision through the Nathan the prophet and says to David, I'm going to make a covenant with you. And this is what theologians call the Davidic covenant. Time when God made a promise with Abraham. God made a promise with Jacob and Isaac. God makes now a promise with King David, a covenant, that I will bless you. And he makes a specific promise. I want you to look at it because it's important, and then we're going to bring this to a close. 2 Samuel 7, verse 16 says, Your house and your kingdom will endure. This is Jesus speaking, 2 Samuel 7, 16. Your house, your kingdom will endure before me forever. Wow. And your throne will be established forever. Wow. How, how is that even possible? Nathan reported all these words in the entire vision to David, but how is it impossible that the entire kingdom would come to David and it would last forever? Well, we see in Luke chapter 1. If you look at Luke chapter 31, I'll read it for you. It's familiar. Luke chapter 1 verse 31 says, now listen, this is Gabriel speaking to Mary. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. That's an incredible statement. I believe that's why Matthew begins his genealogy in Matthew 1.1. 1, 1. The Gospel of Matthew says, 
an account of the genealogy of Jesus, the son of David and the son of Abraham. You see, Jesus, being the son of David, carries on the throne of David, the promise that God made with David hundreds and centuries and centuries before with King David that his faithful love would be with him and his house and kingdom would endure forever because who sits on the throne today? David? No, God does through King Jesus. The son of David, the son of God, is the savior of the world. He is now ruling and reigning over the kingdom of God here today. And so it is so important to get that connection, yet it's so amazing to consider and think through the connection that David is standing in Jerusalem, as the Ark of the Covenant is present there on that mountain. And so many significant things have taken place on that place that influence us today. If you remember in our series a few years ago where we talked about the story of the Bible, and and in Hebrews as well, we talked about a person named Melchizedek. For in Genesis 14, it was on Mount Moriah near that location where so many significant things took place. We see the name Zion and Jerusalem and Moriah being the same general location. And the king of Salem or the king of Jerusalem comes to Abraham and blesses him, gives him bread and wine and encourages him and, and, and blesses the people saying that you will be blessed by God most high. So the king of Jerusalem in that time comes to the the father Abraham and blesses him. Then it's in that same location on that mountain where God calls Abraham to go up into the Mount Moriah and bring your only son, Isaac, and sacrifice him for me. And it's in that place on Mount Moriah, on Zion, in Jerusalem, the future pre-Jerusalem, in that place where, where God provides a ram as a substitute for the son Isaac, and the Lord provides in that place. Then later, centuries later, you will see David mountain, go up that mountain and bring the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem, to Mount Zion, Mount Moriah. In that place, David will capture the stronghold of Zion and call it the, day, the city of David. David will then, in 1 Chronicles 21, purchase a threshing floor from Ornan the Jebusite, where he will then make a sacrifice and ask God, is this the place where you want your glory to be? God will answer him and burn up that sacrifice and say, this is the location for my temple. And Ornan the Jebusite's threshing floor will become the very location, the very site on that Mount Zion, on that place, God will build a temple through David and through David's son, Solomon. And it's in that temple location that David does it, that Solomon does, 2 Chronicles 3. Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to David, his father, the place that David had appointed, the same place where Abraham and Isaac, the same place that Melchizedek was from, is the same place that Jesus enters into the New Testament, into Jerusalem to cleanse the temple. It's the same location. It's the same concept that we see that this house, this kingdom will endure forever. Because in Revelation 21, one day you saw a holy city, the new Jerusalem coming out down from heaven of God, prepared like a bride, the holy temple of God, the eternal kingdom. Jesus' birth and prophecy that he will be and he will receive the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and to his kingdom there will be no end. It's the same thing that we worship and praise and we do on Palm Sunday when Jesus rides into Jerusalem. Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David, right? The son of David. 
We see this beautiful Hosanna, save us, save us, the son of David, our final king, the anointed one Messiah is here. And what did they do on that same throne, that same kingdom, that same hill, that Moriah, that Zion, that Golgotha? Matthew 27 says that they stripped him, they put a scarlet robe on him, they twisted together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and they put a reed in his hand, mocking, mocking the scepter of authority that this king of the Jews had, for they said, they mocked him saying, hail, king of the Jews. Then in Matthew 27, 33 When they came to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull, which is right outside the city walls of Jerusalem, Moriah, Zion, you're getting the theme. They they, they took him and they crucified him. And over his head, they put a charge against him. What was his charge? That he claimed, it said this, that this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Who said that you would destroy the temple and raise it up in three days? Go for it, Jesus. Go for it, King of the Jews. King of Israel, if you're really the king, why don't you come down and, be- and save yourself, they said. And when he died, the curtain, the veil of that temple in Jerusalem tore in two. The earth shook. The rocks split open. The tombs were open. This son of David, the long foretold promised successor of King David, is now certainly, as the centurion remarks to it, he says, truly, this is the son of God. Son of David. Son of God is King Jesus, who is for eternity the King of kings. His name is what it is. Jesus' name means the Lord is salvation. This is God's redemptive plan. This is not happenstance or chance. This is history. Real people, real events real historical timeline of how God has worked in Genesis to Abraham, Jacob, to Isaac, King David to give us a type to look forward to the final and final coming of Jesus, the son of David, the son of God. King Jesus would take the cross, be buried in the tomb, and raise and resurrect the temple to now be a spiritual temple where we can all come together and worship him in spirit and in truth. Because there will come a day, as Jesus tells the woman at the well, where we will not have to go to this city or that city or to Jerusalem to worship him. We can go wherever God's people are to worship him, for the temple of God is here within you. Do you not know that your bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit? The living God is within us. Do we not know that here in Jaffrey, New Hampshire, we're going to partake of communion in a moment? participate in an act of obeying the ordinance and requirements of God, but to do it in such a way where this family meal is representative of a spiritual reality that God has worked within us, that his body was given for us and his blood was shed for us so that we can say to him, as a citizen of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God is here within this church because you have allowed Jesus to rule and reign within your life. And wherever he rules and reigns, that relationship is present. His kingdom exists. And we celebrate that today as a family meal. We celebrate them in that manner. Every time we say, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. Let me pray before we come to the communion table. Father, we come before you today acknowledging your your communion 
this opportunity that we have to commune with you in this mighty kingdom of God. Thank you for being our king. Thank you for being real and, and, and loving. Thank you for being sacrificial in your leadership of giving yourself for us. Thank you, God, for all that you do for us. In Jesus' name we pray.